The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I teach linguistics at Columbia University. This week, we'll be doing something that we, i.e. I, should have already done eons ago, as in talking to Ben Zimmer. You may remember him as the Wall Street Journal's language columnist. Before that, he was the New York Times' language columnist. And Ben had the honor of doing lexicography at the Oxford University Press. Anyway, Ben and I seem to meet almost monthly at either a conference or event or even house party. And now we meet here in the valley. I'm going to start that idea that we're doing this in (laughs) the valley instead of in a booth. And Ben, it's been slang that's on your mind lately. Is that correct? Slang is pretty much on my mind all the time. I'm fascinated by (laughs) slang, particularly American slang. I just want to get to the bottom of where slang terms come from. It involves a lot of detective work to figure out the roots of slang, particularly slang that might be a bit indecent. The fun slang is. Yeah, exactly. But that is obviously documented less in proper print sources that may abstain from that kind of language. So I have lots of fun trying to find those sources of slang which might be a bit off the beaten track. You got to be a little inventive sometimes in figuring out where to look. And once you find the slang in older sources, trying to figure out what to do with them, what did the terms actually mean at the time that they were used. So there are a lot of sort of fascinating challenges with the study of slang. So you know I'm going to ask you this before we dive in. This is the question that people like you and me always get. What is slang in your definition? What would you say it is? Non-standard, but then what? Yeah, it's more than just non-standard. I mean, in a way, slang is oppositional to standard language. Is that part of the definition you'd say? I would say so, yeah. And so it can be playful, it can be irreverent, but it's irreverent in terms of its stance toward what we think of as more standard language. And so very often we're dealing with terms where there is some sort of standard term that people know, but this is the term that you would use if you're with your friends, if you're with a particular age group or some other demographic or subculture where you're sharing in a lingo that can be kind of an in-group marker. Does it have to be subgroups? That's something you find in a lot of the standard definitions, that it's not everybody in a society that's using slang. It has to be some segment of society, young people or black people or some people. Is that part of it? Generally, yeah. And when slang goes mainstream to the extent that everybody knows it, sometimes it loses its cachet as slang. But then again, you know, there are some terms that we sort of recognize as slangy that everybody knows. I mean, if you say that's cool. Yeah, is that slang? Well, you couldn't say that it belongs to any particular group. That, since that, no. It's pretty universal. And We've all for a said while. it at one point or another, yeah, right. Yeah. But it started in a particular subculture. That particular usage of that's cool or he's cool starts in jazz circles in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Before people teeny- who are hep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Lester Young, people like that. Dexter Gordon might have been the original users of that kind of slang. And eventually, by the 50s, the Beatniks. teeny boppers are using it. Okay. Sure, beatniks, yeah. But, you know, it's fascinating. Fascinating, even with something that becomes (laughs) widely used like that, it can wax and wane. So in the 60s, I don't think the word cool was very cool. It had a bit of a comeback in the 70s, in part because there was a kind of a revival of 1950s nostalgia. I never thought about that. What about the word dis? In my last show, I was talking about whether or not something is a word. 
And I think it's gotten to the point that dis is a word and disrespect is a separate word. But is dis slang? I remember in the 80s thinking of it as slang and using it in quotation marks. Now I think I just spit it out. Nobody would call me a very slangy person. Is that slang or was it slang? That's another case where a slang term can go relatively mainstream. But at the same time, if you're using it in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, for instance, it's not something you can sort of just drop into an article without being a bit self-conscious about it. And so slang can make appearances in sort of more standard language like that. But even if the actual quotation marks aren't around it, it can have kind of invisible quotation marks because it's sort of seen as marked in some way. Talk about dis and cool and terms that exist on a certain precarious point between not slang but informal is swell, which I discussed as something that maybe isn't a word anymore in my last show. Two people have sent me, not one, but two people have sent me this scene from an early episode of I Love Lucy. This is Lucy and Ricky and Ethel and Fred. And the guest is Hans Conried, who seemed to pop up in about every fifth episode. And they've decided they want to speak well. And listen to how swell and lousy sat in the culture in 1952. We must rid our speech of slang. Now, besides OK, I want you all to promise me that there are two words that you will never use. One of these is swell and the other one is lousy. (laughs) OK, what are they? (laughs) One of them is swell and the other one is lousy. Well, give us the lousy one first. (laughs) I don't believe you quite understand. Uh, Don't bother to explain, Mr. Livermore. Just tell us what the words are and we won't use them. No. But don't you see the one with the other? (laughs) May I have a glass of water, please? Okay. I I mean, yes. I would say, okay, that's a swell way to get off to a lousy start. So thank you, folks, for reminding me of that. I am beginning to forget the early I Love Lucy's. In any case, Ben, you've actually pointed me to the, the Vietnam graffiti project. Yeah, this is one place you can look for slang. It's definitely a sort of a non-traditional source. In fact, there have been, you know, attempts to mine graffiti for quite a long time. There's a wonderful collection by Alan Walker Reed, who went on a trip out west in the U.S. in 1928 and just went around collecting graffiti that he found in laboratories and things like that. (laughs) And it actually provides a lot of the early citations for various taboo terms (laughs) that you might find, you know, as the first citation in the Oxford English Dictionary. One of my favorites there, actually, is somebody who seems to be trying to combine scatology with sophisticated syntax. This shithouse stinks like shit because it is so shitty. That was a wonderful graffito. (laughs) But there were others. Continue. Yeah. So if you look up shitty in the Oxford English Dictionary. Which one might? You, you will find that exact quotation. Graffiti is interesting because, of course, nobody really dates graffiti, said, I wrote this on such and such a date. <laughs> it's just there, and someone has to write it down at a particular time. We're lucky that Alan Walker-Reed had the foresight to write down um, all of this graffiti that he found back in 1928. 
Who keeps track of graffiti? Who would actually think to keep something so ephemeral in an archive of any sort? Well, we're lucky for the Vietnam era. At Texas Tech, there's a collection of the Vietnam Graffiti Project, and they have about 400 canvas bunk bottoms that are covered in graffiti. So these were on Navy ships originally, transporting troops to Vietnam. And what are you going to do while you're there on your bunk bed? Well, you're going to scrawl some graffiti on the canvas there. And there's a perfectly wonderful etymology that one gains. I, I knew somebody once who had their face slapped for saying, that sucks. And it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't me. But the idea was that sucks refers to something this person's mother said. And you get some insight into the birth of sucks in yeah. that source, right? That's one that sort of fascinated me for a while because people have very different judgments about that sucks or it sucks. Is there something rude about it? Is it really that vulgar? Or is it just the mothers out there saying, Oh, no, no, don't say that. That's uh, a bad is there word. something being sucked? And right. You can imagine what it would be. Right. <laughs> exactly. So the unspoken thing that people worry about is does this formation originally have to do with fellatio? You went there. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, we have to go there sometimes, you know, for the for the scholarship. And it's a complicated question because that word suck has been involved in a lot of slangy expressions having to do with someone or something. What is being sucked. Exactly. So, for instance, suck wind, suck eggs. Suck shit also one here. Sure. So all of these things have perhaps contributed to this intransitive use of suck. But we're missing evidence for how it was getting used in the 1960s by groups that first circulated that slang term, which then became more widely known in the 70s. Although we get some light shed, right, from this source in terms of transitive versus intransitive uses of suck here. Exactly. And so what you find if you go through this searchable database Peruse. of graffiti from these Vietnam sources is that the people who are writing the graffiti will say something sucks, intransitive, and that's sort of what would have been a very new use at the time, but a transitive use as well. For instance, you very often would see someone writing on their bunk bed canvas, the army sucks, just the army sucks. Then you would also get plenty of variations on the theme involving vulgar objects. <laughs> the army sucks dick, the army sucks big dick, the army sucks big slimy dicks. All the variations you could think of show up uh, in this graffiti. And it's very clear, at least for this population of army recruits who were stuck on these transport ships going across to Vietnam, suck for them, you know, transitive, intransitive, they would just freely interchange these things. And so from that evidence, it would seem that there really was this sort of implied sexual object, even when they're using it intransitively. So transitive as in having an object and so eats a banana, as opposed to intransitive where there is no object. And so something like Billy eats and then leaves. I feel moved to say that some of the Vietnam graffiti is almost strangely unimaginative. It's kind of like <laughs> the primitive comic strips that become more idiomatic. And so some well, people just wrote fatty or <laughs> one person just wrote 
sex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I there's, found that interesting. There's quite a range. I mean, you know, it's clearly motivated by boredom more than uh, <laughs> nece- nece- yes. necessarily having needing some creative outlet. Ben, I have a bone to pick with you while we're on the subject of slang and especially vulgar slang in the past. And you probably know where we're going to go. I'm going to play this clip from a previous show. We are at a theater watching a Warner Brothers cartoon in 1933. And listen to what little Bosco, the unpleasantly Simeon, little early Looney Tunes character, pops off with while he's playing the piano for a silent film. Ben, you and I have had conversations about Bosco and whether or not he is hurling off with the F word in that film. And you you think he isn't. Remind me what your take on it is. Well, I mean, the way you presented it, you know, you said, well, this was before the Hayes Code was being enforced. And so, yeah, they were just free to drop an F-bomb in the middle of this cartoon <laughs> because that's just what you did in 1933. And that's not what you did in 1933. <laughs> this, this really has to pass a very high bar for me to accept that the creators of the cartoon wanted Bosco to say, you dirty fuck, and that that actually was released in that way. I think that there's... It is quite odd, yes. Yes. I think it's more likely that what was originally produced in this cartoon was you dirty fox. But why would he say that? Well, fox itself is a slang term going back centuries, meaning a cunning or duplicitous person. And even though the character who is being called a dirty something is not actually... not an animal. Not an animal. That's fine. I mean, there's also in this very same cartoon a title card that says Dirty Dalton the Cur, Cur like a dog. He's not actually a dog either. Right. These terms could be used in sort of a slangy way. So Bosco could be saying you dirty fox. I'm guessing that because of what the vowel sounds like in, in the audio there. And then perhaps there was some sort of post-production mischief, perhaps. You could have <laughs> left off that final S sound. But so, then the question really is, how did that get by? Like, right. even if it got by okay. a censor, why weren't people complaining in the theater? I openly right. admit it's bizarre. Yeah. I think it's a complicated question that we may never know the answer to, unfortunately. But I think there's also a danger in trying to sort of look back on this old evidence, very often audio evidence, and kind of look at it through our present day eyes and give it a certain understanding based on what we think about the language, Mm -hmm. which might not have been true at the time. A fun example from roughly the same time period is from 1928. There's a song, kind of a bluegrass song that a lot of people I'm sure are familiar with called Big Rock Candy Mountain. It was recorded in 1928 by Harry Mack McClintock, which was actually something that he originally wrote back in the 1890s. McClintock himself was a former hobo, and he Hmm. sang this song, Big Rock Candy Mountain, which kind of imagines the hobo's paradise. I want you to listen to this and listen to the clarity. One thing that you young'uns don't understand is that not long ago, you could never hear something this old so clear. The very first time I heard a CD of Benny Goodman, it was 1987. It was one of the most electric moments in my life that now that kind of sound was available. The one before that was when I first experienced a VCR. That was 1981. And you know, there have been none as electric since. I hate to say it. I guess that makes me dull. But listen to this clip and most importantly to what happens at the end. The clip is short. Here we go. In the big rock candy mountains the jails are made of tin and you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. 
there ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, saws, or picks. I'm a-going to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the Turk that invented work in the big rock candy mountain. Okay, so in that part of the song, you can hear Mac McClintock say, where they hung the blank that invented work. Now let's listen to it again. No axes, saws, or picks. I'm a going to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the Turk that invented work in the big rock candy mountain. It sounds like it could either be jerk or Turk. And I kind of hear jerk if I'm not prompted. Yeah. I sort of present this at talks and I ask the audience, what do you hear, jerk or Turk? Sometimes it's about half and half. Sometimes more people hear jerk than Turk. If it really was the word jerk, that would be actually quite interesting because it would be the earliest known appearance of jerk to refer to someone who's stupid or annoying or mean. Currently, the earliest citation in the OED is from 1935. And so it would be remarkable for it to appear in a song recorded in 1928. And even more remarkable if this was something that was in McClintock's original version that he had written back in the 1890s. Now, if it was the word Turk... That would be interesting, too, because that would be a very old slang word that would have been dying out by the time that McClintock used it. Turk to mean sort of a cruel-hearted man or a savage fellow shows up in slang dictionaries going all the way back to the very first slang dictionary of English in 1699. It shows up in a 1904 work by Farmer and Henley called Slang and Its Analogs, Past and Present, which is a wonderful resource. But when they were writing about it in 1904, this word Turk, clearly not a very politically correct term, was already marked as old. So which one was it? Was it brand new slang or was it this sort of old slang that had been falling out of use? Well, we're lucky to actually know the answer to this question because McClintock actually appeared in court as part of a copyright dispute And he had to provide the lyrics to his song as he sang them. And he transcribed it as Turk with a T. And, you know, in a way, you want the person to be saying jerk. We like to read ourselves into the past in a way. And in the same way, this is a clip which you've provided of something we wish Elvis Presley was saying in 1968. Let's listen to him here. Just relax about 10 minutes. So apparently Elvis was saying chillax and he, 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 doesn't that make him mod? And, you know, the truth is I've seen probably almost every film musical, except I have never seen an Elvis musical. I'm not sure why. So I haven't seen Live a Little, Love a Little, but I've heard this clip. Is he saying chillax? Yeah. So this was brought to the attention of a fellow member of the American Dialect Society uh, mailing list. Is that how this uh, happened? Yes. Yeah, that's how it came to my attention. Someone very excitedly said... Elvis Presley used chillax in 1968. (laughs) And that would truly be remarkable because uh, if you look in the slang dictionaries for chillax, which is sort of this combination of chill and relax, the earliest we get to is maybe 1993, around there. So 1968, that would be an incredible antedating, as the lexicographers say. I had certainly never seen live a little, love a little. (laughs) 1968, this was like right before Elvis had that comeback special on TV. So his career wasn't doing too well. These sort of later movies. I'm told these musicals are actually good. Viva Las Vegas. Well, some of them are. This one, not so much. I mean, it did have the song (laughs) A Little Less Conversation in it. That may be the high point of that movie. Also, you might be interested, Rudy Valley is in this movie as well. Old Rudy Valley? Old Rudy Valley. Oh, like in the How to Succeed movie. Wow. Yeah. Elvis's character is a photographer and he has like two jobs and one of them he's reporting to 
Rudy Valley for this huh. conservative advertising firm. He's also working for this sort of Playboy-style magazine in the same building. And so what you hear in that clip is him. He's sort of running back and forth up and down the stairs in this building. Huh. And so he says that line. And when I listened to it, sadly, I had to conclude that that's not chillax at all. <laughs> Most likely what he's saying is just relax about 10 minutes. But if you say it Elvis style, particularly Elvis when he's out of breath, <laughs> just relax becomes shrlax, shrlax, something like that. That was a good so. imitation. Yeah. <laughs> so he wasn't. Here is one that's a lot of fun, though. Laurel and Hardy, when they first start talking in 1929, clearly were not used to the microphone. And sometimes, especially when things got a little improvisatory, you, you can listen to them mumbling things and you can tell they're used to there being no sound. And that includes their supporting players. This is a perfect day in 1929. And at one point, Edgar Kennedy, who's always angry, is having trouble and he's trying to get out of a car. And if you listen closely enough to the soundtrack, you can hear that he actually says, oh, shit. And they left it in because it's so quiet. Listen to this. We're going to turn it way up. We're going to play it twice. They're in the car. Listen to the guy in the background. Listen to it one more time. So that's one of my favorite examples because I think it's pretty clear that he was saying, oh, shit, and nobody noticed because it's kind of, as they say, subliminal. But say, mister, mister, who creates slang? <laughs> who who makes it? Where does it come from? And what people want to hear these days is something about Drake and YOLO. And so let's play oh, the man. motto. Here here it is. Now she want a photo. You already know though. You only live once. That's the motto, nigga. YOLO. And we bought it every day, every day, every day. Like we sitting on the bench, nigga. We don't really play every day. YOLO, you only live once. In a, he created it or he actuated it, as we linguists say. Does slang come from single people? It's almost impossible to say that about any particular slang term. You certainly can't say that Drake invented YOLO. I wrote about YOLO for the Boston Globe back in 2012 when YOLO had its big moment. That Drake song had come out earlier in the year, and by the end of the year, it had already been sort of played out. That shows you how quickly slang can <laughs> become passé. I identified the moment when Katie Couric started using YOLO on her daytime talk show. That was the death of YOLO as far as I was concerned. <laughs> Hi, everyone. You know, I just found out what the acronym YOLO means, Y-O-L-O. -O. It means you only live once, and it's kind of a synonym for a bucket list. So I've got lots of YOLOs. I think one of my top YOLOs is to star in a Broadway musical. I want to know, what's your YOLO? But Drake certainly wasn't the first one to use it. Um, you know, there are certainly examples, I believe, going back to the 90s. Oh, if it you, goes that far back. Yeah. If you Google YOLO, uh, my Boston Globe article is still is one of the uh, top few returns for that because <laughs> it has a very kind of search engine friendly headline. What is YOLO? Only teenagers know for sure. And, you know, at the time, it was mostly slang that young people used and totally baffled uh, older people. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> so this is very often the case. I mean, sometimes a particular song or movie or some other pop cultural source will help to popularize a bit of slang, but hardly ever is it the case that that song or movie was the first ever known use of that bit of slang. 
What are your tips on using the Urban Dictionary, which is a wonderful source, but boy, does one get avalanched to make that into a verb. When you look something up like YOLO, and of course, yeah. some of the people are chuckleheads, some of them are gentle person experts. How do you approach the Urban Dictionary? It's not worthless, but then it's also dangerous. The largest problem with Urban Dictionary is that a very large percentage of the user-generated entries are people who are not just reporting slang that they hear, but just putting things in there for the hell of it. Sometimes they're making fun of a friend of theirs. Sometimes they're just putting it out there to see if people will start using it. It gives you very little sense of what people are actually using out there in the real world. It can be useful as a kind of evidence if you're looking for the early uses of something that you know exist. Sometimes Urban Dictionary is a place where people start wrestling with what does this word mean? How do you use it? Who uses it? Who do you use it about? That sort of thing. And so you can occasionally get some very valuable information from that. One of the things that I do, I'm editor for Among the New Words, which is a quarterly feature yes, yes. in the journal American Speech. It's been going since 1941. You don't mean your contribution. No. <laughs> yeah. Dwight Bollinger started it in American Speech back in 1941. I've been chief editor for just the past five or six years. And, you know, one thing that we do is when we're looking for evidence for new words, we're creating sort of OED style entries for things that are very new. And we've often have to look at sources like Urban Dictionary, like it or not, just to see, you know, is anybody using it there and defining it? But very often now, if we look at social media like Twitter, which is very searchable now, you can, you know, find examples of people using new slang terms in a relatively unself-conscious way, as opposed to, again, Urban Dictionary, where people are being very conscious in terms of thinking, well, you know, how should I define this word and trying to be funny about it usually at the same time. Nine times out of 10, it feels like they're trying to make some sort of sexual slang out of, you know, any given word. But, it, you That's know... That's what it was like looking up hey a few episodes <laughs> ago. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So actually, things like Twitter, other social media are providing a kind of a corpus that we can use that is more like spoken interaction in that way. Obviously, there are all sorts of conventions that people are using, like hashtags and so forth, which you would never actually use in speech. But it does help us very often paint a picture of how a new slang term enters the language and who it's coming from. That's important to identify. So often these days, as it has long been the case, young African-Americans, very often young African-American women are the ones who spread certain slang terms or other linguistic innovations. And we can actually get a sense of that through social media now. In a way, it's this more kind of egalitarian source for understanding where this amazing source of creativity in the language may come from. You know, Ben, I never quite understand how you hold it all down, but thank you for giving your wisdom to me on this show. And we, of course, will continue to see one another in various venues. Absolutely. But this has been a lot of fun. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you. Folks, I want to give you a little treat in closing. A word that used to not really be a word that now is, there's an example I forgot last show, brunch. 
Brunch used to be in quotation marks, and I'm just old enough to remember. And here's an example of how that word felt in 1975. This comes from the late, great, frankly, late television show, The Jeffersons. And if you are a little black boy in 1975, this show had Talmudic significance. This is episode number five. George and Wheezy are talking about brunch. Here it is. It's not what we eating, it's the time we eating it. 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, we just having breakfast. That's sinful. No, it ain't, because this ain't breakfast. It's brunch. <laughs> brunch? Mm-hmm. The rich folks invented it so they wouldn't have to worry about getting up too late for breakfast or too early for lunch, so they call it brunch. <laughs> what do we eat if we don't get up until the afternoon? Dinch? <laughs> Not a bad idea. And in the meantime, tell us your thoughts about the show. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That is lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. This show is edited by Mike Volo. I'm John McWhorter. Thanks so much for listening, and see you back here in two weeks. 